All right, now, turning to Hebrews chapter 4. Let's, let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we come to be fed and to be nourished. We come to be taught, uh, to be comforted, to be challenged, and to grow in our, our understanding of who you are and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our uh, feeding time. Hopefully it's not our only feeding time during the week, but this is an important time for all of us. So give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to listen and uh, the, the will to obey you and to trust you. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 uh, is preceded by these statements in, in chapter 3 where, where Jesus is compared to Moses and we see the superiority of Christ to Moses. And then a, a warning at the end of chapter 3 uh, in verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. <coughs> Excuse me. And then in verse 19, so we see that they, the, the Israelites in the wilderness, were not able to enter because of unbelief. And chapter 4 then immediately picks up on that theme, remains with it. And we're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. The writer says there, therefore... Uh, beginning with verse 19 of chapter 3, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear, while if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. What we have in, in this passage is a reason for concern and a reason for hope. So talking about the, the reason for concern, it's what's given to us in verse 1. Let us fear... If, while a promise of remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So two words here that are, that are very important for us to understand. The word fear and the word seems. Uh, I've, I've got a, a master's degree in ministry from Talbot Theological Seminary. I've been a preaching pastor for 25 years. I'm acquainted with the original languages and able to do original language research. So I can tell you that the word translated fear means fear. It means to be afraid. 
um, sometimes translations or uh, other, other people teaching will try and reduce the sense of this word. But it means fear. Let us be afraid if while a promise remains of, any, of entering his rest, any one of you seem to have come short of it. That's a serious concern. Another, the other word that, that matters here is the word seem. It's, it's the word uh, appear. What's the appearance of something? What's the outward appearance of something? What, is it, what does it seem like? It, looking out the window now, the sun is shining, and it, it's a little bit breezy, and it seems to be a very pleasant day outside, but it's 50 degrees, and if you actually walk outside, what it seems to be isn't necessarily what's real. So the issue here is if we see somebody who has made a claim of being a Christian, but there's no evidence to believe that, we should be afraid for them. That's the appropriate response. In fact, that's the response that God calls us to have. Can we know the spiritual state of somebody else with God's level of certainty? Of course not. Of course not. And he, he doesn't say that we can. That's why the word seems is there. Um, only God knows those who are his. But we have enough information about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be converted, that we can, we can look at the fruit of somebody's life. Uh, we see in Scripture that genuine saving faith is persistent faith. It continues. It doesn't give up after a time. We see that those who are truly in Christ... Um, uh, testify of their faith in Christ through their lives, through their love of the word, through the fruit of the spirit that God grants them, through increasing godliness to obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, through a number of different things that, that we see in, in scripture. None of these things save us. None of these things can make us Christians, but they are the promised result of actually being converted, of being transformed by the Lord. Now, when somebody says they're a Christian and they're, they, they question they re, the word, they reject the word, they lack the fruit of the Spirit, they show no outward evidence of rebirth, there are obviously a lot of people who would say, well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. God will take care of it. God will take care of it. Or, well, who am I to judge? Somebody else. Um, but the issue isn't, isn't judgment. The issue isn't that we stand in judgment over their eternal state and that we have the power to say, yes, you are a Christian or no, you're not a Christian or to put them into heaven or to take them out of heaven. The, the, the point here is that when somebody is making a claim of faith but they don't seem to have the fruit of it, our response is to be one of concern and fear for the sake of, of their soul. The passage closes, verse 11, it closes with another bookend. See, it's not just about the other people. It's not just about any of you. It's about us too. Verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience as was shown by the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, there, have, there have always been people 
like those Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, who have a, a form of godliness, but they deny the power of that godliness. And they deny the power of it by failing to actually show the results of salvation in their lives. They don't actually appear to be saved. They don't seem to actually be saved. So, two things. One is, we're not the judge of anybody's salvation. God is. Um, Our job is sharing the gospel with all who need to hear it. And the second thing is that the point of this is not to score points off of anybody. The point of this is not to put ourselves in a superior position and to say, I'm so smart and I'm so good and I've got it all down and you're obviously missing the boat. The, the point is to say, we have a, a, a genuine concern about the, those whose lives don't reflect Christ while we remain diligent about our own salvation without taking it for granted. Love speaks up. Love says to somebody, I'm concerned about your life. I'm concerned about what you're, what you're doing or, or what you're not doing. Now, what does Jesus have to say about all of this? He, he says this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but at, inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he says, You will know them by their fruits. Um, he doesn't say you might know them or it's possible maybe to recognize them, he says their fruit becomes evident. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Obviously not. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so then, so then you will know them by their fruits. So how, what does this have to do with salvation? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, weren't there people or aren't there going to be people who say, I'm a Christian, I know the Lord, I've done this, I've done that, but who aren't. And when they show up, he will say, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. So Jesus is concerned about this. Jesus recognizes this as a reality, that there are people making a claim who don't actually have genuine saving faith. There is nothing unloving or unkind about saying to somebody, you talk about being a Christian, but I don't see it. In fact, it's the most loving thing that you can do. In 1991, I was treated for cancer. I went through two surgeries. And after the second surgery, I went to the oncologist and the decision was made that I I wouldn't go through chemotherapy. And then they tracked me. And and for a time, they tracked me every month. The cancer that I had was so aggressive and so fast growing, you couldn't track it every six months. They tracked it every month. And then we moved to every two months. And then we went to every three months. Why do that follow-up? Well, because they often don't get it all, and it comes back. Is it unloving to say to somebody, I'm not sure? And you can't be sure. No, it's the most loving thing that we can do to somebody. There have been a lot of people who were raised in the church or made a confession of faith. They've gotten involved. They put their hands up. They've gone forward. They've been baptized. 
but there's no evidence of that in, the, in their lives. We need to remember the gospel is not, I get to go to heaven when I die, but Jesus Christ died to save sinners of whom I am chief. The gospel is not go to church and, and live a happy life, but take up your cross, follow Christ to Calvary, and he will put you to death and then raise you with a new life, with a new identity. The gospel is not I'm okay and you're okay. The gospel is none of us are okay. But Jesus is utterly righteous. And when we surrender our lives to him in faith, we are credited with his righteousness. That's the gospel. So do genuine Christians, actual Christians, have doubts and insecurities? Of course. Do genuine Christians go through times when they don't reveal anything about Christianity in their lives? Of course. Of course we do. Just think about the thief on the cross. He has the promise from Jesus himself, today you will be with me in paradise. How much time was there for him to do anything good, to have any change of character, to have any change of who he actually was under pressure? None. But he was genuinely saved. So the Bible clearly testifies about God's mercy and God's kindness towards those who wrestle with doubt and wrestle with uncertainty. You might think about Gideon. I got the order wrong this morning, so I'll see if I can get it right today, but, or the, this, the, later this morning. <coughs> the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, greets him as a mighty warrior. Gideon probably turns around and looks because he's hiding. Um, he's threshing wheat in a wine press so that nobody can see him, so he doesn't get nailed by the bad guys. And he's told by the angel, you're the deliverer. And Gideon says, okay, I, I need some evidence of that. So I've got a, a, a fleece from a sheep here, off of a sheared sheep. I'm going to put it on the ground. And when I wake up in the morning, I want the fleece to be dry and the ground wet. And she's not arguing with me, so I must have gotten it right. And the Lord doesn't say, you know, if you had enough faith, you'd trust me. But forget it. If you're not going to trust me, never mind. The Lord says, okay, we'll do that. And he gets up the next morning, and the, and, and the fleece is dry and the ground is wet. And the Lord says, okay, I showed you. We good now? And Gideon says, no, actually. I'd like to see it again, but in reverse. I'd like the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. And the Lord says, no problem. And he gets up the next morning, and he takes the fleece, and he, he, he squeezes bowls of water out of the fleece. And then Gideon said, okay, now I'm sure. The Lord was merciful toward that doubt and uncertainty. When the angel Gabriel goes to Mary and says, the Lord is with you, you are going to conceive in your womb a child. She knew because the language makes it clear, now, you're going to conceive now. It's happening now. This is not some random future prediction. One of these days you'll get married and you'll have a baby. It's now. And she says, I'm not with a man. I don't get how that can be. Joseph has called her husband because engagement was considered full marriage, but they had not yet consummated their marriage. They had not yet gone through the full ceremony, so they weren't living together as husband and wife. She's still a virgin. So she says, how can this be? And the angel doesn't rebuke her for her lack of faith. The angel says, well, the power of God will come upon you, and the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, or the power of God will overshadow you, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will conceive in your womb a son, and he will save his people from their sins. 
And she says, may it be to me as you have said, and, and they move on. God is merciful toward our doubts. He's merciful toward our insecurities. That's a beautiful thing that we, see, we see in Scripture. But God has an absolutely harsh line toward willful unbelief. And that's what we see with the hundreds of thousands of Israelites in the wilderness who had been given sign after sign after sign after sign. God says ten signs. So somewhere between, between uh, the, all of their time in Egypt and then the deliverance through the Red Sea and the food and the water and everything else, God had given them ample proof of what he could do for them. And when the spies went into the land and came back and ten of them said, there's no way we can take the land and the people believed them, God said, that's it. That's it. This is not, I'm not sure, this is just willful disobedience. You've had ample reason to believe. Another example of that would be Judas Iscariot. Judas was one of 12 men chosen by the Lord Jesus. And almost every time you see Judas mentioned in the Gospels, he is the one who betrayed Jesus. If you read the Gospels, one of the things you'll see is that, is that they unfold within, within the Gospels. Uh, what we see about Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 is not what we see about Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 because he lets the story unfold. In Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Jesus is announced. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is born, who is this child. He comes to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's all of this mean? The miracles unfold. The teaching unfold. The people come to the understanding. And at the end, Jesus is raised, and he says, all authority has been given to me on, in heaven and on, and on earth. That was true in Matthew chapter 1, but we see the story unfold, right? But every time you see Judas mentioned, he is the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus because he was always going to be the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus and he never wanted to do anything else. There was never genuine faith with Judas. There was never genuine belief. Jesus chose him. Why, Jesus, why Judas was part of the larger band of followers, we don't know. But Jesus chose him knowing that he was the betrayer. There's no mercy for him. There's no grace for that. And when somebody makes a claim to be saved, but there's no evidence of salvation, they have no love of the word, they have no submission to the Lord, there's no fruit of the Spirit, there's no hunger for godliness, there's none of the other indications of conversion, we're commanded to respond with fear for their soul. Not with hatred, not with despising them, not with blaming them, but with fear. With fear. We're going to run in, into three kinds of people in this world. We have people who are very, very clearly non-Christians. Th those who follow the teachings of the Watchtower. There's Michael the Archangel. He becomes Jesus. He dies on the cross. And then Jesus stops being and Michael the Archangel comes back. They don't, they're not Christian. They don't worship the God of the Bible. The God of Mormonism, uh, James White, the apologist, theologian that I track, um, he made the comment, in his opinion, Mormonism doesn't have a God. There is no such thing as God in Mormonism because God is simply an advanced human being. It's not that you've got a different kind of, of being at all. God, angels, and man are all the same thing, just at different states of, of, of power or of existence. They're not Christian. 
If you meet a Muslim, the Muslim is going to say, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. That's the Shahada. You say it three times, you're a Muslim. If they worship a false god, you meet somebody who's, like Richard Dawkins who's, or Christopher Hitchens, who's an atheist, and said, there is no God. It's all nonsense. Everything evolved. It's clear who we're dealing with. We know how to talk to those people because the lines are so clear. And on the other side, we've got people who have been saved by the grace of God. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. They've been born again, and we see that growing evidence in their life. They're walking with the Lord on a consistent basis, not perfectly, not always, uh, not, not always in, a, in a sensible way. There are some really insensible people, silly people out there who are genuinely saved. We're silly at our times, too. It doesn't matter. But the point is there's this middle group. In that middle group are those who talk like Christians, who say that they're Christians, but when you look at their lives, they don't have the evidence. And again, our response is not to be one of hatred or despising or contempt. Our response is to be one of fear, to bring them the gospel. So there's a reason for concern. We see what that reason concern for concern is. But within these verses, there's also reason to hope. Now, certainly next week, we're going to get into the supreme reason for hope, which is the high priesthood of Jesus. But there's reasons for hope within these verses themselves. In verse 3, we see the phrase, we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed in Jesus Christ enter the rest of God. It doesn't say that we who believe will someday enter or possibly will enter or we who believe have the opportunity to enter. It says we who believe have entered the rest of God. We have come into that saving state. And so when when we encounter somebody who talks like a Christian but whose life is absent the evidence of it, we can say to them, that there is more to being a Christian than your mouth. There's actual genuine conversion that comes out by the power of God. It's not you. It's not saying if you really love Jesus, you would be a different person. It's if you're in Christ, the grace of God will not leave you unchanged. And we may say to somebody, I don't see the fruit of Christ in your life, and that concerns me. I'm afraid for you. And they, re- they respond with humility. And they respond with a repentant heart. And they say, I know it's been hard. I, I, I got turned away. I got into this. I met these people. I just got tired. I just got discouraged. And I, I, I just kind of gave up. But I, I trust Christ with all my heart. And I long to live for him. I wish I knew how to live for him. You know, that person is not going to be angry that, that you were concerned. And they might be today. But I think I can promise you that in eternity they won't come up to you and say, I'm so mad at you. On the other hand, maybe you'll say to that person, I just don't see it. You talk about it. I had a guy come to me two or three years ago. He said, I was, I was, talking, to, I was talking to so-and-so. And she said, she doesn't think I'm a Christian. And I said, oh. And he said, what do you think? And I said, tell me why you think you're a Christian. Well, I go to church and I try to be a good person. He, I, and I gave him 30 minutes. And finally at the end I said, 
I don't think you're a Christian. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian then? And I went through the gospel with him. And I, I didn't say, so today's the day you're going to sign the card. I don't like doing that. But it's, he, he began to evidence a change. That's three years ago. And, and my contacts with him now, he's now moved, but my contacts with him now, every time we talk, there's just more evidence. It's just there. Do you think that he's offended that that woman said to him, I'm concerned for you? He got saved because of it. it it's hard to do this, but what we're actually talking to people about is not what might happen in the future, but about the assurance of eternal life now. If you don't have that, I want you to have that. In verse 6, we see the phrase, it remains for some to enter. It remains for some to enter the rest of God. Yes, some have not entered the rest of God. What that means is it remains for them. The door is still open. There's still an opportunity there. Is everybody going to be saved? No. No. Is it up to me or you as to who's saved and who's not? No. So how do we speak to people? Do we speak to people and say, almost nobody gets in, Broadway leading to destruction, narrow way leading to eternal life? I wouldn't even try. No. We say the hope is there. The door is open. Will you go through? Will you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and cast yourself into your hands and let him remake you and be born again? We make an appeal for the basis of the gospel, and that means that there is hope. In verse 9, it says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Uh, again, the emphasis is not on being too late, but that a Sabbath rest remains. There, there's a, a specific phrase that's used five times in chapter 3 and chapter 4, and it's the phrase, today, if you hear his voice. Today. As long as there's a today, there's a reason to appeal to somebody with the gospel. As long as it's today, there's a reason to appeal to somebody with the gospel. Eternity could arrive for any one of us today, and we don't have a tomorrow. So today is our last today. I've, I've known people who said to me, I don't want to do that now. I'll do that later in my life. And my response always was, but you don't know if you have a later. You don't know if you have a later. Well, we have to trust people to make their own decisions and to make wise decisions. My best friend in high school died from kidney cancer uh, about six years ago. I, I had uh, reestablished contact with him seven years ago. We as a family went to Washington, D.C. He was living in that area. And so we got together. He looked terrible and told me he'd been treated for kidney cancer. Um, he was diagnosed. He went through surgery. And then they said, we need to do chemo. And, of, and of course... Drug companies are all in it for the money and they're just poisoning people, so he's just going to do natural treatment, which, of course, means he chose to die. And uh, then the next year I had a sabbatical and did a long motorcycle trip and ended up going through the D.C. area and contacted him, 
And he said, well, my, my cancer reoccurred, and so I'm, right, I'm, I'm at home right now. I'm not working. And so I went to his house, and, and he just looked awful. In fact, he, at one point, he got up and fell into my arms. He literally fell over, and I had to support him. Um, my hope was to go back on our return after I picked Linda up in Boston. But it didn't work to do that. And I wasn't getting any responses from my emails to him just to try and say, I'm not going to be able to come back right away. And about three weeks later, I heard that that week that I was there, he had gone into the hospital. And so that I think that was on a Saturday or Sunday. And I flew out on Monday morning or Tuesday morning, and I spent several days with him. And I went out specifically to share Christ with him one last time. He was not a believer. Um, He'd been in a hospital bed by that point for four weeks or five weeks. He was not eating. He was in terrible pain and on so much pain medication that he just kind of was in and out of consciousness. But he did not have cancer. He was adamant he did not have cancer. And he was going home. He was really upset that they were not sending him to a rehab facility. So it's possible for us to talk to people who are in such absolute denial of their own spiritual state that they simply won't face what's true. And I told him what's true. You're dying. You're not getting out of this bed. Sooner rather than later, you're going to be standing before God. And then he, he got a, a fresh breath of energy and went on the attack like he always had when we were in high school and I tried to share Christ with him. He had enough energy for that. He spent 30 minutes. I kept trying to change the subject because it's like this is obviously going nowhere and it's not good for him. And finally he just kind of wore himself out. And I was sitting there wondering, well, what do I do? What do I do? I'm leaving him in God's hands. I'm okay with that, but do I just continue to sit here? Do I leave? I don't want to leave and have him think I'm mad at him because I'm not. His nurse came in, and she was doing something on the other side of the bed. He's laying there between us. And she says to me, are you family? And I said, no, friend from high school. Local? No, from California. California, you came all the way out here? Why? Well, where do you live now? live in Nebraska. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, I go to Mark Deaver's church. Mark Deaver pastors Capitol Hill Baptist Church. It's a great church. Gospel-preaching, Christ-centered church. She says, how did you become a Christian? And I shared my testimony, standing over Mike. And then I said, how did you become a Christian? And she shared her testimony, standing over Mike. And he heard the gospel. He was fighting it. He wasn't going to listen to me. Now, what he did in the remaining two weeks, three weeks of his life, I have no idea. Can I have any assurance that he's saved? No. I don't have any evidence that he's not. I have to leave that in God's hands. That was a clear situation where somebody is simply in denial of of their life physically. There are people who are in denial spiritually. We need to remind them, you may not have a tomorrow. Today might be your last today. And finally, verse, verse 10 says, the, the, uses the phrase, the one who has entered his rest, God's rest, has rested from his, the person's works. That is, the person who has believed the gospel and been born again is eternally saved, eternally secure in Christ. And, and here's the beautiful thing. They are no longer like the Israelites living in the wilderness trying to pretend it's paradise. 
People who make a false claim to be Christians are not happy people. They're either trying to deny their own conscience or they are trying to earn salvation, knowing all the time it's impossible, knowing all the time that they're failing. We're freed in Christ from the burden of the law. You know what the burden of the law is? I, I always just kind of instinctively thought, I never thought about it really, I always kind of instinctively thought the burden of the law is not sinning. That's the burden of the law. Don't, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I always thought the burden of the law was not sinning. It's not the burden of the law. The burden of the law is be righteous like God is righteous. I can avoid a particular sin at a particular time, but I can't be righteous like God is righteous. We're freed from that. We enter a rest from our works because the works of Jesus are attributed to us. His righteousness is credited to us. That means his works are attributed to us. They're credited to us as though we had done those works. Jesus has already obeyed God perfectly for you. It doesn't mean that we are free from the responsibility of obeying, but we're freed from the responsibility of earning righteousness on our own. And when we come before the Lord, he hears us no matter who we are in Christ because we've been given credit for every good thing Jesus ever did, and he never did any bad things. So we've been given credit for perfect, whole righteousness, which means the focus of my life is no longer how do I keep myself saved. How do I earn salvation? How do I keep myself saved? Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. I love this. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So the inheritance is is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and reserved for you. And you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The inheritance is protected for you. You're protected for the inheritance. That's what it means to be in Christ. I think it's the museum phone. It's a tremendous promise. Christians are those who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're not saved by any of the good works, by any of the indications that I've talked about this morning. We're not saved by those things. But without those things, there's reason to be concerned. So what do we do with all of this? 2 Corinthians says this, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Now, we can learn something every day. I learned something this morning. I'd never seen this before. This verse presumes salvation. It presumes salvation. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless? It doesn't presume damnation. If it did, it would say, do you not recognize that you're going to hell, unless? The presumption is that when somebody has made a claim to be a Christian, that they're a Christian. That's the presumption we are supposed to make. Keeping our eyes open about their life 
isn't judging them for the sake of destroying them. It's saying, is there actually evidence building in your life? Is there actually fruit that you are rooted in Christ? And while we do that, we are to be diligent about ourselves. We are to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We are to test ourselves to see in the faith. Uh, How do we do that? Here's seven questions. There's more that could be asked. Do I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh? Do I know that I fully deserve the judgment of God? Do I believe that Jesus Christ died in my place? Do I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do I believe that I am forgiven by his blood alone? Do I believe that I am justified by his righteousness alone? Do I see the evidence of salvation in my life? None of us can answer these questions perfectly. But all of us who are Christians can answer yes to all seven of these questions. And if you look at one of these or two of these or three of these and say, no, I don't know that. I'm not convinced of that. I I don't believe that. Then the opportunity is there to repent, to believe the gospel, and to ask the Lord to cause us to be born again. As, as I look through the room, my conviction is that all, all of you could answer yes to these questions. You know how well I know you. I know some of you very well. I know some of you not very well at all. Nobody has to meet our criteria. But when, when somebody seems to be falling short, love says I'm concerned. I'm concerned for you. And, you know, frankly, this shouldn't be a strange idea. We live in a culture that for, I don't know, what, 20 years now, 30 years now, friends don't let friends drive drunk. Friends say, you shouldn't be driving. Well, friends don't let other people face eternal judgment because they're embarrassed. We pray about it. We just say in humility, being diligent about ourselves, get the log out of our own eye before we get the splinter out of somebody else's, and then speak up. Nobody will hate you for helping them get to heaven with greater assurance. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that you grant us to be with you and to be with each other. We all know people who have uh, made a claim of, of being saved and who don't seem to be. And that's, that's the key, is they don't seem to be. We understand that they don't have to satisfy us. We understand that our opinion of them is not uh, going to, to carry weight with you as to their eternal destiny. But we also understand that because you've given us the scripture and you've given us this command, you've done it for our good so that those who do know you could have the full assurance of knowing you and that those who don't and are deceived can be brought into the light for the sake of salvation. Some of the hardest conversations I've, I've ever had have been like with this, this man several years ago saying, no, I don't think that you're saved. But love requires that we say what we think, come to your word, and offer the hope of the gospel. So, Lord, grant us that courage 
and grant us the courage and the obedience to be diligent to make our own calling and election sure. To be diligent to make sure that we don't personally fall short. Let us look at our own lives before we look at the lives of others. Lord, glorify your name in us. Strengthen us this week as we trust you and and follow you. We lift up those who are not with us and ask that you would bless them this morning, remind them of your love and of the truth of your word, and bring us back in joy and celebration next week. And in your name we pray. Amen.